The membership economy is a massive transformation that is changing virtually every industry in terms of the way they interact with the people they serve. Hello and welcome to another edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast, advancing the equipment manufacturing industry. I'm Dusty Weiss, AEM's professional nerd, super user, and podcast host. And in this episode, the membership economy. How equipment manufacturers can tap into the same business model that's made powerhouses out of companies like Netflix, Amazon, and Salesforce. We'll talk to author and consultant Robbie Kelman-Baxter, who's been working with companies to help them capitalize on this trend since about the time when Netflix still snail-mailed you DVDs. But it's that sort of frontline expertise that we work to bring you here on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Each month, we explore a new subject area to help keep your business on the cutting edge of the industry. So if you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the feed so that you're updated every time we put out a new edition. And for the day-to-day news in the industry, also make sure you check out our twice-weekly e-newsletter, The Industry Advisor. Some recent advisor headlines include why CNH's profits soared 283% in Q3, how the farm economy is driving technology adoption, and why one economist says a U.S.-China trade deal is still pretty far off. Check out AEM.org news for more on these and other stories. So, across multiple industries, there's a shift underway in the relationship between companies and their customers. Enabled by high-tech data from the Internet of Things, this shift is moving manufacturers toward the role of service providers, and it's moving customers into the role of members. At a recent Thinking Forward event for AEM members at Purdue University, we heard from a pioneering consultant and author in this space, and I had a chance to sit down with her afterwards. Robbie Kelman-Baxter, thank you for joining us on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Thanks for having me, Dusty. Robbie, you are a uh, consultant and the author of The Membership Economy. Find your super users, master the forever transaction, and build recurring revenue. That's kind of a mouthful as far as book titles go. (laughs) But it's also a three-pronged approach to this concept of the membership economy. So I guess for starters here, what is the membership economy and why is it important to companies in the 21st century? The membership economy is a massive transformation that is changing virtually every industry in terms of the way they interact with the people they serve, characterized by four key transformations. It's about moving from ownership to access, from anonymous transactions to known relationships, from one big payment to many small payments, and from speaking to your customers through a loudspeaker to hearing what they have to say as well and even going one step further and allowing your customers to connect to one another under the umbrella of your brand. When you put those four things together, you don't need to use all of them at once, but they become a painter's palette for business model redesign. Sort of starting then with this notion of the forever transaction. This is something that came up a lot when you were presenting moments ago to our AEM members here at the Thinking Forward event in Purdue. You also called it the forever promise, and that's really sort of what it is. From a corporate mindset, it's a shift in thinking from the standard notion that we build and sell XYZ more to the idea that we are going to provide you as our customer with this service and we're going to be there for you continually. Why is that mindset important and 
How is that a tough transition for companies to make? So it's really important when you think about a forever transaction, that's like the holy grail for companies, right? You want to know that your customers are going to stay with you forever, that they're going to buy once and keep coming back. The only way to justify that on the customer side is if you make a promise to them about what they're going to get in return forever. So that's kind of the forever promise that justifies the forever transaction. Now, the thing that's really important for companies to think about is what does that mean in terms of what they're delivering? And it's really about the value they're providing, less the costs or liabilities that they're providing. So if I buy a new car, let's say, there's a lot of value in that car. I can drive it wherever I want. I can customize it. I can give it to my kid when she turns 16 and gets her driver's license. But I have some liabilities that come with it as well. I have to maintain it. I have to park it. It depreciates quickly. Uh, I have to put a lot of money up front for it. If I need a different kind of car, let's say I need a van for a few weeks, I can't trade it in and get that and then go back to my sedan. So for me, there's value that I'm not getting when I buy a car. There's stuff that I'm giving up that I wish I could get. And if there was a car company that focused on the value that Robbie wants, they might provide a different package of benefits than just buy the car, have the responsibility, use it however you want. And so that starts bringing us then into some of the new business models that we see emerging. The temporary day-long car rental companies that have popped up, or even you mentioned Uber as an example of this. Yeah, people who say, I want to be able to predictably get from A to B without driving myself, without having the responsibility of owning a car or maintaining a car. And up until recently, taxis were not a reliable way to get around. You'd have to call them, wait a half an hour, or you'd have to rent a car and then you still have the burden of driving and the burden of parking, which doesn't help you a lot when you're in a congested city. So starting to take apart the bundle and then repackage it in a different way. So sometimes it's about adding services. Sometimes it's about changing how you price it. And sometimes it's actually about changing features in the actual manufactured product itself. Taking the ownership proposition then of buying a car, um, you're going from, I'm going to sell you a car to, I am going to make the forever promise to you that when you need transportation, it will be there for you and it will get you where you're going in a manner that is cheap and caters to your needs of the day. Maybe you need a van, maybe you need a car. Yeah, and maybe you pay by the mile instead of paying by the car. You can pay in different ways. And what's important is to try to align the way that you structure and charge for your value, align that with what your customer really wants. If you can remove some of those key pain points. So for example, if you have a product that you buy every 10 or 15 years, and then that product slowly deteriorates and becomes obsolete, and then you buy a new one, you know you can already see where the, where the pain points are, right? For several years, I'm using a suboptimal product because the car I bought is old. And then I have to go through the whole process all over again of reevaluating what's out there in the market. If I love Volvos, wouldn't it be great if I could just get a new Volvo every couple of years or even a used Volvo every couple of years that wasn't too old, but that was more current and suited my needs? It's just a different way of thinking about how to serve the customer. So taking that concept then and applying it to the heavy equipment industry, yeah. all of a sudden we're talking about then, you know, a, a piece of heavy construction equipment, let's say a bulldozer for the sake of discussion. And a bulldozer is something that traditionally you fretted over it, you went to some trade shows, you tried a couple, you saw them in action, 
and then you made a significant purchase, much more expensive than a car, but then you also had that bulldozer on your construction site for 20, 30, even 40 years. Some of that equipment lasts for a generation or more. How do you apply this concept of the membership economy then to the heavy equipment space. Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of ways that one could apply it. So you might look at utilization. Maybe one bulldozer isn't being used enough to justify its cost or it's sitting idle. It'd be great if somebody else could take it to a job and use it there to make sure that it's getting optimally used. It might be that I want to make sure that I can have the newest one you know, more frequently than every 25 years. And maybe there's somebody else who'd rather have a used one or be willing to take the older bulldozer. So it depends on kind of what your business needs, how frequently you use it, how sophisticated you are, what features you need, because I imagine that the bulldozer I bought 25 years ago is nowhere near as feature-rich as one that I could buy today. And so it's removing the risk that I bought the wrong one. It's ensuring that I get full utilization out of the one that I've paid for or can access other people's. And it's giving me confidence that I'm never going to get to that dip where I'm using something that's obsolete. Those are sort of the benefits from the customer side, but there are also benefits that are out there from a business standpoint. For the manufacturers of these products, what are the benefits to having customers who are not just customers, they're members, essentially? Yeah, so if you take this example of the bulldozer, let's say that you rethought the model and there was an element of sharing in it, and maybe there was an element of uh, insurance in it that you always, you know, you get the new one every five years or you get some kind of a, a different arrangement. People will pay a premium for that. They say, you're making these problems go away. I would gladly pay to not have to go shopping again and have to do that research and go to all the trade shows. I'm not good at I'm not good at shopping for bulldozers. I only buy them every 25 years, so I don't have skill in that area. I would rather just always have a bulldozer that worked, right? I'll pay you a premium to have access to that, number one, so you're getting more money. And second, I'm not going to look for alternatives because I'm never going to get to that tipping point where I have to swap out the machinery. So on the company side, they get greater loyalty, they get more revenue over time, happier customers, and they start to learn what it is that those customers really want. Because if you only give people one way to buy things, you say you buy the bulldozer, you keep it for something like 25 years, you never really learn what it is that they want other than bulldozer features. And a lot of times the problem is not with the bulldozer features, it's with their overall ability to get their job done. You framed this during your presentation as a matter of triggers and hooks. And I think back to my last car purchase, I got it because it was the only subcompact SUV that offered a manual transmission. I figure it's the last <laughs> gas-powered car that Old I'm ever going to own. I might as well have a stick shift on it. But I'm keeping it because of the heated seats. Triggers, and hooks. Yeah. When you talk about triggers and hooks, triggers are something are features that get people to make a buying decision. It's what people come to the dealership for and say, I need something that is fast. I need something with manual transmission. I need something with this functionality. But your hooks are what actually builds the loyalty. It's when people say, I bought it for the speed and I kept it for the seat warmers. And it's really important to know which features in your product are driving purchase and which features are driving loyalty and engagement. The other thing that I want to say when you talk about, since you talked about heated seats, is a lot of times the features that build loyalty are not the features that are the most fun for the engineer to build. 
And, you know, sometimes it's just about the cup holders. Um, it's about this, the heated seats. It's not always about the engine. It's not always about the speed. If you talk to customers and ask them not just about what they want in the product itself, but also about what their life is like, you start to get a lot of insights about what the full value potential is that you could be providing them. And that gives you all kinds of ways to both generate more revenue and to build greater loyalty. And a cold morning like this on the ride over here to Purdue, I think we looked <laughs> at each other and we said we could really use some heated seats today. But uh, we're talking with Robbie Kelman-Baxter. She's the author of The Membership Economy uh, and the founder of Peninsula Strategies. You mentioned during your presentation a super user. What is a super user and why are they important to the membership economy? A super user is a best customer plus. It's somebody who goes beyond just being the kind of customer you wish you could make more of, the kind who is loyal to you, uses your products and services well so they're getting good value and the likelihood of them to come back is high. They go beyond that when they're a super user and they actually spend their own time and money to help your business. These are people who are ambassadors, who bring in new customers. They're your referenceable accounts who are always willing to share their own positive experiences with your company. They're the people that give you feedback when you release something new and tell you what's working and what doesn't work and um, participate in your focus groups to give you feedback. And these people are really valuable because they're creating things of value for your organization that make the business run more smoothly and more effectively. And as they do it, they often make themselves even more loyal to you. That's the funny part about super users is that as they work for you, they become more loyal. The That's process. so nice of them. Why do they do that for us? And how do we encourage that? And how do we get them to keep going at that? Yeah, so um, Abraham Maslow um, talked about the hierarchy of needs. You know, once your basic physiological needs have been met, you move up into mitigating risk, feeling of belonging, being recognized for your contributions and achievements, and ultimately achieving your full potential. And helping other people and being an insider in companies that are important to your business makes you feel a sense of belonging and gives you recognition among your peers. And those are really important needs that human beings need to have met. And if you can provide that to your best customers, it will pay off. You lay out a seven-step framework for the membership economy. What are those seven steps and how can manufacturers implement them if they hear what you're saying and, and they look at their business model and they say, you know what, I could really take advantage of this. Yeah, so you start with organization itself. You think about, are we structured in a way that optimizes our customer's experience? Um, are we siloed or are we integrated? Do we think about retention and engagement? Are we tracking how people are using our products and using that information to help them benchmark and to help our team build better products? Um, and are we using the right metrics to make sure that our customers uh, are loyal, engaged, getting value and returning? Second thing is, thinking about the funnel from the bottom up. So thinking about that long-term relationship, what's gonna happen when the product becomes, you know, when the product becomes too old and they need to get a new one? Are they gonna come back to you? If the answer is no, work your way back up the chain and figure out why and optimize for that long-term relationship. Start at the bottom of the funnel. 
Third thing, you want to really think about how you onboard new members. Uh, you might have a buyer uh, in the buying part of the organization, but the people who have to use the product every day um, are out in the field. And when they get the new piece of equipment, they say, I, I don't really like this. I liked the old one. I don't understand it. I'm not going to use the expensive new features. And I'm going to give a lot of negative feedback and push back until they go with the old way. Um, so you really want to counteract that by creating and choreographing an onboarding experience for all of your constituents at the customer. Fourth thing is you want to think about your pricing model um, and make it easy for the buyer to buy. You know, you talked about bulldozer. Buying a bulldozer is a big one-time decision, probably a once in a career, maybe twice in a career decision. That's a hard purchase. If you can make it easier, if you can give them, for example, access to a bulldozer as opposed to all the responsibilities and the cost of ownership, you might get into new accounts more easily. Um, so thinking about different ways of pricing your value to make it easier for your buyer to buy is a, is a great technique to explore new business models. Fifth thing is freemium and free trial. It's figuring out how to use the concept of free to build new leads and also to cultivate relationships with people who might become tomorrow's buyers. This is all about thought leadership. This is about having conferences. This is about building networks, connecting people. Uh, many companies um, actually uh, help people find jobs using the machinery that they sell, um, becoming kind of a de facto recruiter to, or a broker to help people find their next job because you know, often people are looking for someone who knows how to operate this type of equipment. Um, so there's a lot of ways that you can layer in value for free, both among your existing paying customers and among uh, your prospects. Um, sixth thing is customer success. It's having a focus on your customers getting the most out of the products they're already paying for as a means of deepening the engagement, as opposed to just being customer service, waiting for a problem and then fixing the problem. Different mindset around how you support your customers. And then the last thing is technology. There's a lot more software, internet of things that's coming into play. And what I would suggest is that every part of the organization needs to be well-versed in technology and have ideas about how they could leverage technology to improve their work. Um, they don't have to be technologists per se, um, but they have to be comfortable using technology as a tool. And when you take those seven tools, there's a lot of potential to strengthen your business model, especially if you feel like your company has gone kind of too far to the product side of the continuum and needs to make its way closer to the customer again. I just want to say as a special little side note here that I love the medium of podcasting, but it does have its shortcomings. And one of those shortcomings right now is that our listeners will not be able to see you having just recited those seven points from memory without any notes in front of you, without any presentation in front of you. You just rattled those <laughs> off and crushed it. So bravo, that was very Thank impressive. You. The heavy equipment industry is a, a very unique industry. It's been around forever. In fact, AEM as an organization will be celebrating its 125th anniversary next year. And a lot of our member companies are even older than that. And when you're building equipment that lasts 30, 40, 50 years on a job site, and when you're dealing with companies that have been around for well over a century, there's often tremendous organizational inertia, particularly when it comes to adopting new ideas. That's just one hurdle. What other hurdles do you see 
in this very specialized industry of construction and agricultural equipment adapting to the membership economy? Yeah, well, so inertia is always a challenge, especially in companies that have enjoyed a lot of success in the past. There's also very real risk of, of cannibalization, of destroying a business model that is actually working pretty well by trying something new. So that's a second issue. Also, a lot of times organizations don't have the skills that are needed to make this kind of transformation because those skills weren't needed or didn't exist when the company started. So structurally, they don't have a place for those people. So for example, software engineers, thought leadership, uh, content people, you know, you have marketers who seed the market so that the salespeople can close the transactions, but you don't necessarily have aftermarket communications experts who continue to build the relationship because that wasn't needed before. So I think sometimes companies don't even know what they don't know, especially in industries where people grow up in one company. So then that becomes their model for what a good company is where if they went somewhere else for a year or two, they might come back with a lot of new ideas. So, you know, I think that, that good techniques for any successful company, one of them is to go to conferences, do professional development, read business books, just kind of get out and explore different kinds of ideas and see what you can bring back. And the other thing is one of my business school professors, Andy Grove, wrote a book about only the paranoid survive. And um, the idea of this was that even when your business is going really well, you might want to take a moment and be a little paranoid and say, how could we get put out of business by an upstart with deep pockets, a really good team member from our current leadership organization, and a technology guy from, you know, fill in the blank, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, who wanted to put us out of business? What would they do? Often that leads to some of the very best ideas. I'd say so. There are a lot of examples out there of companies that have really thrived in this space of the membership economy. Uh, Netflix is a prime example. Uh, Amazon Prime has me dancing like a monkey on a string these days. <laughs> but what are some of the examples of companies that have tried and failed in this space? And what are the lessons that we can learn from them? Because oftentimes I feel like failure is one of the best teachers. Yeah, so I think that the things that make companies fail in membership is probably first and foremost is not bringing it all the way through the company. So going to subscription pricing without offering commensurate value, for example. Calling it a membership, I see this all the time, calling it a membership when it's not, when the customers don't feel like members. I don't care what you call them. You can call them customers. You can call them users, although to me that sounds like, you know, kind of a drug deal gone awry. <laughs> um, you can call them... Um, subscribers, uh, Pandora calls them listeners. It doesn't matter what you call them. You need to treat them like you're committed to them for the long term. And I see a lot of companies that just do subscription pricing because it's a way to get more money or it's a way to get a better evaluation. I think that's probably the biggest the biggest issue. Um, or when they offer a membership and then make it too complicated. Um, and people don't understand it, and they just go back to the old way. Those are probably the, the biggest risks that I see, the biggest sources of failure. Keep it simple. That's important. Our, our Thinking Forward program is uh, uh, regularly out exploring uh, not just new business models, but uh, new technologies as well. And things like the Internet of Things, uh, the big data analysis that's now going on in most businesses, have really enabled the membership economy to grow by leaps and bounds here. What role are these new technologies playing 
in the membership economy right now. Yeah, well, they're, they're making it possible for manufacturing to participate. When I wrote my book, manufacturing, they were not a, an area of focus for me. And just three years later, we're starting to see companies like Carbon 3D that is subs- allowing people to subscribe to manufacturing equipment, um, taking the data that they gather back to you know corporate, analyzing the data through their software system, and then sharing that with their customers as benchmarking, best practices, um, optimization tools, and also using it to continue to tinker with and improve the product itself. So with AI and with well with Internet of Things in particular, um, you know anything can be subscribed to and. It allows you to understand how it's being used. It allows you to make sure that it gets repaired on its own. It allows you to really rethink what the value is of that product. It kind of changes how you can sell the value. Rather than having to buy the thing, now you can subscribe to the information that the thing gathers. When you're charting out uh, the value proposition for customers here, the last step uh, that you sort of set out for our members is to take their feedback and then do something of it. It makes me think back to an old, I think it was a far side cartoon, and it was uh, like a, a suggestion box. And it said, we welcome your input. Thank you for your suggestions. And there was a slot in the top of the box, and then it dropped through the box into the trash can underneath. How do you stop that from being what happens to the feedback that comes from your users, your members in the membership economy? Yeah, so so a couple of things. One is that you, obviously, you want to close the loop. So the challenge of membership is that people expect to be treated like members. They actually expect you to listen to what they say and respond. One way of doing that is if you have a place where they're giving their feedback, let's say a customer success manager or a service team, giving them the authority to follow through and changing how you compensate them to, you know, do their customers feel like when they give feedback, the feedback is processed and they get an answer. Um, The answer doesn't always have to be, we'll do what you say. It can be, we're not going to do what you say and here's why. But do they feel like they that the loop was closed? Um, on, a, on a bigger level, on a more structural level, implementing processes for managing feedback can be really valuable. So I've done a lot of work with the Net Promoter System, and I, I, I'm sure your your members are, are familiar with this concept of you know it kind of comes down to that very simple one question, which is, would you recommend us to your colleagues? Right. And sometimes people call it the net promoter score, which actually isn't the name. It's it's the net promoter system because the score just tells you how you're doing, but the system actually takes that feedback and does something with it and says, okay, any feedback relating to product, this is how we handle that. Any feedback relating to service, this is how it is. And by the way, we have a task force or a team that actually looks at it holistically at the overall experience and feedback of our members to see if there's a bigger thing going on that we should be resolving. So having both a person who receives that information and then having a system internally that does something with that information are two key steps to closing the loop. Well, Robbie Kelman-Baxter, you're going to be speaking at the AEM annual conference for anybody that's interested. But if I want to learn more about uh, the membership economy, your best-selling book, or Peninsula Strategies, your company, uh, where do I go to learn more about you? 
Well, you can get the book on Amazon.com, The Membership Economy. You can find me uh, at membershipeconomy.com or peninsulastrategies.com. Uh, I'm very active on, uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, I post a lot of articles and content um, around business models. So, you know, feel free to, feel free to link in and mention AEM. And uh, if you have any questions or comments, you know, please feel free to, to reach out and, and, uh, and send them to me. I'd love to hear what you think. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise with us. It has been a pleasure. And Robbie Kellen-Baxter, thank you for joining us on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Thanks for having me, Dusty. It's been a lot of fun. Robbie left a real impression on the AEM members who joined us at the Purdue event as well. The uh, membership concept and gaining a relationship with your clients and being able to expand that relationship and hold on to it. It was very interesting. That was, uh, she was wonderful. We believe in developing a long-term relationship. Most of our clients have been with us 30 years, and we try to keep up with the technology and introduce that to them and have people that are in uh, contact with them frequently. Like all the Thinking Forward events, there's something that sparks a, a thought that um, you can take back home and, and use you know, in your day-to-day work. And Robbie Baxter threw around this term, the forever benefit. Um, if you were to shift to providing your customers with a forever benefit, what could that potentially look like in what you do? Yeah, it would look like uh, communicating uh, in any language anywhere at any time is what we do. That was Ken Klein from Lionbridge and Ken Cook Companies. Ken Cook, though I was actually surprised to find out that's not his name on the sign. And you are the eponymous Ken Cook for whom the company is named. Uh, not exactly. My father was Ken Cook. Oh, he also. was? I was okay. the junior or the, the fellow that followed him in the 90s. So, <laughs> Well, that's close enough yeah, in my book. that's bro. close enough. Ken and Ken were just two out of the 258 AEM members who joined us for a Thinking Ford event this year. Our incredible membership and education teams organize these events each year to help AEM members stay on the cutting edge of the industry. And I just want to take a moment here as we wrap up 2018 to note what a bang-up job they did yet again this year. Those same teams are already hard at work planning our event lineup for 2019, and we're excited to present you with these. For a sneak peek, head over to aem.org think to see the first ones we've already posted. February 21st at Airbus in D.C. and March 12th at the Houston Space Center are two dates that you need to pencil in on your calendar now. Again, it's aem.org think to reserve your spot at one of our 2019 Thinking Forward events. If you want to go back and catch up on the events that you missed, Open up your podcasting app and subscribe to the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. We have recaps of our sessions at 3M, MHub, and Autodesk, among many other episodes. Leave a comment or a rating, too, after you're done listening, because it helps other industry pros find our podcast. This is going to wrap up this edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. If you're looking for another great way to stay on top of industry trends, follow AEM on LinkedIn. Just search up the Association of Equipment Manufacturers to see the news and events that are relevant to you. If you need to get in touch with me directly, shoot me an email at podcast at aem.org. The AEM Thinking Forward podcast is brought to you by the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Little Glass Men does the music. And for AEM, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.